Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 90-meter band to South West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohogo and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. The International Criminal Court to launch a preliminary examination into the situation in Burundi. And the United Nations has confirmed that it is trying to facilitate the return of South Sudanese opposition leader Riek Machar to the country's capital, Juba. But with the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Equatorial Guinea's President Tuadora Obiang has received 99% of the early vote from Sunday's election in the two most populous areas. Obiang obtained 40,600 votes out of 40,926 in partial results tallied in the capital Malabo and the port city of Bata. Already Africa's longest-serving leader, Obiang is on track to beat six other candidates for another seven-year term. Final results are expected on Thursday and the winner will be sworn in on the 2nd of May. United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has condemned the assassination of Burundian Brigadier General Athanasi Kararuza and his family in Bujumbura. Kararuza was until September last year the Deputy Force Commander of the UN Peacekeeping Mission in the Central African Republic. A security advisor to the country's Vice President, Kararuza, was dropping off his daughter at school when the attack took place. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. The UN says the assassination of Brigadier General Kararuza comes in the wake of several instances of politically motivated assassination attempts in Burundi over recent weeks, including a Sunday attack on government minister Martin Nbiabandi, as well as prominent members of the security forces. The UN statement says all such acts of violence serve no purpose other than to worsen the already volatile situation. Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has urged that a rigorous and prompt investigation of these events is undertaken. Earlier, the International Criminal Court announced it was starting a preliminary investigation into violence in the country. South Africa's opposition, the Economic Freedom Fighters, says it will defend itself in court against treason charges brought against it by the ruling ANC. The ANC laid the charges at Johannesburg's Hillbrow Police Station. They're based on comments made by EFF leader Julius Malema in an interview with TV network Al Jazeera over the weekend. Malema warned the ruling party that if it continued to respond violently to peaceful protests, his party would remove the current government through the barrel of a gun. EFF Secretary-General Godrich Gadi says Malema's comments can be defended. 
Well, we will hear what the court says, but definitely it's never, it's not an incitement of uh, violence. It's a fair political comment in an election mood period when a country is in, in an election period. It should be seen in that context. It's a fair political comment. The Somali government has been urged to prohibit additional clan elders from adjudicating in cases of sexual and gender-based violence. The UN independent expert on the situation of human rights in Somalia, Bahame Tomnyanduga, also called on the authorities to enhance the capacity of the judiciary and force police to handle such cases. And finally, the United Nations says female genital mutilation is on the rise in Guinea, despite being forbidden by national and international law. Some 97% of women and girls between the ages of 15 and 49 in the West African country have undergone the practice, which is also known as FGM. Jani Kangalusi reports. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Rad al-Hussein, described FGM as an atrocious act of violence which had no possible justification. In Guinea, the practice is mostly seen as an initiation rite. Groups of girls from different families are often cut together, either at home or in camps. That's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you. And the International Criminal Court has announced that it is launching preliminary examinations into the situation in Burundi for alleged crimes, including rape, murder and torture. At least 430 people have been killed and over 3,000 arrested in violence and unrest in Burundi since disputed elections last April. Jack Parrock reports. Nearly a quarter of a million Burundians have fled to neighbouring countries like Tanzania and Uganda since the political crisis in Burundi began one year ago. And now the International Criminal Court says it's going to look into whether to investigate whether crimes against humanity and war crimes have been committed there. Fatou Ben Soda is the ICC prosecutor. It is a process of analysing the information available to determine whether the applicable legal criteria have been met for the opening of an ICC investigation. According to the Rome Statute, the treaty which governs the court, as prosecutor, I must consider issues of jurisdiction, admissibility, and the interest of justice. Burundi has been engulfed in unrest since President Pierre Nkurunziza was elected for a third term, which many believe is unconstitutional. The International Criminal Court is only supposed to step in when a country is unwilling or unable to handle a case, and some fear the Burundian judiciary has turned a blind eye. Bernard Mangan is a Belgian lawyer representing 60 families of victims in the Burundi violence. So now the general prosecutor will be obliged to deliver the content of his files and prove that he had handled it very fairly. And what is the reaction of the families that I have the honor to represent is that we fear that the general prosecutor didn't make his job. South African President Jacob Zuma has been involved in African Union-sponsored talks for Burundi. The Burundian embassy in The Hague has not been available for comment. 
The ICC case against the Kenyan deputy president, William Ruto, was dropped at the beginning of the month, which means the prosecutor of the court has more time and resources to look into ongoing situations like the one in Burundi. But the ICC's preliminary examination could take months before a full investigation is launched. Jack Parrick, Brussels. The United Nations has confirmed that it is trying to facilitate the return of South Sudanese opposition leader Riek Machar to the country's capital, Juba. International frustration at the delays in the return of the country's first vice president-designate has been growing as the formation of a transitional government of national unity is seen as a critical step in moving the peace process forward. While the UN would not confirm when it hoped to have Machar on the ground in Juba, there was cautious optimism after the arrival of his chief of general staff, accompanied by over 1,000 staff and soldiers aligned to the opposition in the capital on Monday. Show and Bryce Peace has more. The arrival of Riek Machar's chief of staff is seen as a positive move, as General Simon Gatwek Dual's presence in Juba is viewed as a hopeful precursor to the much-delayed arrival of his boss, Stefan Dujeric, for the UN Secretary-General, in this exchange on Monday afternoon in New York. I just got was informed by the mission that they've confirmed that this afternoon a private aircraft was brought into Juba, uh, more about 127 uh, personnel from the SPLA in opposition, including the opposition's chief of staff uh, this afternoon. The Joint Monitoring Evaluation Commission and the AU have requested uh, the UN to facilitate the, ref- the return of, uh, of Rick Machar, and we try to, we're trying to continue to fulfill uh, this request. We obviously would like to see him back as soon as possible, as in it's an integral part of of hopefully the return of some peace for the people of South Sudan. So the UN cannot confirm that he will in fact arrive tomorrow? No. I mean, I I think like a number of the issues we deal with here on a regular basis, we see reports of things happening tomorrow. Once something happened, we'll confirm it, but we're not going to get into the prediction game. Mashar missed an international deadline for his return to Juba on Saturday after his plane departing Ethiopia was refused landing rights, infuriating the international community, including key backer, the United States. This was Mashar speaking to journalists at the airport on Saturday. I've just been informed uh, by Juba uh, that our plane cannot land in Juba today and will not land tomorrow. So permission to land has been denied. That's simple in the case. Are you going to stay in Gambala tonight or go back to Pagak? Well, I want to go back to Pagak so that I can uh, wait for the time they tell me to come back. Do you think the Juba government's wasting your time at that? Definitely it is. But three days later, the UN Stefan Dujeric seemed to express a hint of optimism. The arrival of, of Mr. Mashar's uh, chief of staff uh, is hopefully seen as a, as a positive and harbinger of, uh, of things to come in the return of, um, of the man himself. The United States has been particularly vocal on this issue, expressing disappointment in the delays, while the Secretary General late last week called for Mashar's return to Juba without delay 
and without further conditions being placed on the table by either side, which could not only jeopardize the fragile peace process, but also prolong the suffering of the South Sudanese people. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Illicit financial flows from the African continent are now estimated to stand at 90 billion U.S. dollars. Former South African President Tabumbeki, who is heading an African Union-United Nations panel investigating ways to stem the problem, addressed the media in Johannesburg yesterday. The panel has presented recommendations which have also sparked an interest from other continents. Angela Bulwana has more. Development on the African continent will hit a brick wall if illicit financial outflows are not halted or at least reduced. Former President Tabumbeki says while him and his team of 10 from all over the continent had earlier placed the amount at $50 billion in 2015, recent statistics have put it at between 80 and $90 billion. Now this is a lot of money. The way it happens uh, is that uh, in the main... uh, these illicit outflows uh, uh, are carried out by major companies. It's the commercial sector that is responsible for something like two-thirds uh, of these outflows. Mbeki says these companies collude with suppliers to inflate prices on their invoices. The companies also use base erosion and profit shifting to avoid paying tags. Mbeki says the recent Panama Papers that were leaked have helped them to better understand how tax dodgers operate. He gave an example of a South African company which pretended to be based in Switzerland and then London and took billions of rand out of South Africa. In a period, I don't know, for five or six years, this company had exported out of South Africa because of that arrangement two billion dollars with one company to pay the supposed owner. Uh, <clears throat> the revenue service investigated this uh, and indeed discovered that there was no owner in Switzerland or in, or in England. So the South African company with this fake owner Abroad. The panel is now concerned with how to track the flows and what measures to put in place to monitor their progress. The report has been making waves in other continents which have expressed an interest in adopting their recommendations. On current issues, Mbeki has welcomed the Security Commission's findings that there was no corruption in the multi-million rand arms deal. The report was released by President Jacob Zuma last week. Mbeki says he always knew there was nothing untoward in the deal. It's actually very upsetting because in the end, you know what, what I've said this many times before. <clears throat> These allegations, without facts, but sustained over many years, are based on a stereotype. And the stereotype is African governments are generally corrupt. Therefore, this African government is corrupt. And that's all. The Tabombeki Foundation and other foundations established by struggle stalwarts are now working on a program to promote a national dialogue on the Constitution following the Constitutional Court's ruling against President Zuma on the Nkandla upgrades. Mbeki says he has purposefully stayed away from the debate because he believes the national dialogue is the only solution to what others have termed a constitutional crisis. Because there is this bigger issue of the future of the country and not the future of particular individuals and so on, but the future of the country. And, uh, and as I was saying, again, I'm repeating, really it's only through this national dialogue that we'll be able to provide, provide the answers that are required. 
The National Dialogue on the Constitution will be held on May 8 at Freedom Park in Pretoria. Former Chief Justice Zaki Yakub, who was part of the team that drafted the Constitution, will be one of the main speakers. That report by Angela Bulona. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. It's 16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. In the U.S. presidential race, Republican rivals Ted Cruz and John Kasich have formed an alliance to stop Donald Trump from winning the party's nomination. They hope their coordinated strategy will allow them to jointly battle the New York businessman. The news came a day before five more states held their primary votes. Nick Harper reports from New York. In this bitter and bruising race for the White House, teamwork is not exactly expected. But in an unusual show of solidarity, Ted Cruz and John Kasich would rather band together than see Trump triumph. Ted Cruz explained the strategy. After discussions with the Kasich campaign, we made a decision about allocating resources. We decided to allocate our time and energy and resources on the state of Indiana. Governor Kasich decided to allocate his resources elsewhere. I think that made sense from both campaigns. That means carving up the map, allowing Cruz to campaign unchallenged by Kasich in Indiana and in return giving Kasich a free run at New Mexico and Oregon. The Ohio governor similarly echoed that need to focus resources. This is a matter of resources and, you know, we're running a national campaign and we want to apply our resources where we think they can be used most effectively. But this is more about maths than resources. Trump needs the magic number of 1,237, the number of delegates he needs across all the U.S. states to win the Republican nomination outright failing to get there forces a contested convention where delegates could pick any of the candidates a scenario Cruz and Kasich are hoping for as it could be their only ticket to the White House Trump never known for keeping quiet accused his competitors of collusion and desperation in politics because it's a rigged system because it's a corrupt enterprise in politics you're allowed to collude so they colluded And actually, I was happy because it shows how weak they are. It shows how pathetic they are. Trump is on track for another big delegate haul in Tuesday's Northeast primaries, when Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Connecticut and Rhode Island go to the polls. This Cruz-Kasich joint strategy could slow him down, but it also seems to be an acknowledgement that alone, neither of them can beat Trump. Yet even with this new pact, it may still be too little, too late. Tuesday's results are likely to push Trump a step closer to leading the Republicans in November's general election. Nick Harper, New York. 
On the Democrat side, Hillary Clinton is hoping to sweep all five primary contests, but Bernie Sanders continues to challenge and slow her progress towards the Democratic nomination to run for the White House. The East Coast American states of Rhode Island, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware and Maryland are all holding primary nominating contests. Priscilla Huff reports. Bernie Sanders' surprisingly successful run for the White House may end just a short distance from where it started. That short distance from Capitol Hill is Maryland, one of five states holding primary elections. Here's Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail. I think it comes down to who will vote on Tuesday. I hope everybody comes out and votes. Most of these contests are closed primaries where only party members can participate. And in most states, Hillary Clinton is in the lead. Alice Olstein is an election 2016 campaign reporter for Think Progress. And because of our delegate system, in every state they have different rules, she's very far ahead. It will be very difficult for him, even though he is doing well in California, which has a lot of delegates. But this is unlikely to be the end of Bernie Sanders' influence in the Democratic Party. Why is it that we have a proliferation of millionaires and billionaires, but 30-plus percent of the kids in New Haven, Connecticut, are living in poverty? While he trails in the polls, Bernie Sanders' energized supporters have drawn the attention of party leaders. And if there's anything that I'm proud about in this campaign, it's that we are trying to bring people together. Think Progress campaign reporter Alice Olstein. Even in states that Hillary has won, Bernie has won 18 to 29-year-olds by massive margins. And so that's the really scary thing for the Democratic Party going forward is how do we make sure those young people feel like the Democratic Party is for them. Ahead of the five primary contests, Hillary Clinton has been trying to recast her image, starting with a new television ad titled Love and Kindness. America is stronger when we are all supporting one another. She's also turning her attention to the upcoming general election campaign, floating ideas of who might run with her on the Democratic Party ticket, including the following senators, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, Tim Kaine of Virginia, or even another woman, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. However, Bernie Sanders is not on the list, according to the New York Times. Following the votes in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland, the next challenge for the likely Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton, is to address another problem, the fact that more American voters dislike her than like her. Priscilla Huff, Washington. Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. South Africa's governing African National Congress and its ally Kosatu have slammed economic freedom fighters leader Julius Malema over the remarks he made in an interview with TV network Al Jazeera over the weekend. During the interview, Malema warned the ruling party that if it continues to respond violently to peaceful protests, his party will run out of patience and remove the current government through the barrel of a gun. Both ANC and Kosatu described the remarks as irresponsible and outrageous. Senior political journalist Amos Pacho reports. 
The ANC has reacted to Malema's remarks with outrage, saying they are inflammatory, treasonable and seditious, and that they should be treated with extreme seriousness. ANC spokesperson Zizi Kota says the remarks are also in clear violation of the Electoral Code and the Charter on Elections Ethics, signed by a number of political parties last week, including the EFF. Kota says the utterances display a lack of judgment on the part of the leadership of the EFF, whom have a duty to ensure their membership abides with the laws of the land. He says they want Malema to be taken to task. He has been making these comments over a period of time, and I don't think they must be taken for granted. That 21 years to democracy, and also they are made in the context of a build-up to election, when the environment is quite vi- vi- uh, volatile. Anything can happen, and I don't think they must be taken for granted. But also, we don't know why he's, who's supporting him to make such a call which a call may result in a bloodbath, in a mass manslaughter, a call for violence in South Africa. It's not just discouraged in terms of the law and the constitution. He's a lawmaker, he's a member of parliament. And for him to make such a reckless statements cannot be taken for granted. That's why a prison charge must be investigated by the state. At the same time, Labour Federation Kosatu has called on South Africans not to be influenced by Malema. Second Deputy President Zingi Swalosi explains. I guess everyone has time frames. Perhaps even those that will be sponsoring the arms. Because surely you can't be told by a party that is not in government that they are ready to take up arms. Correct what the President is saying, ZP, where are they? Where are those arms? If you are not going to be sponsored, those arms are not going to be brought into this country if they are not already here. We have fought against the third forces and we are saying to the people of South Africa, we are calling for all citizens to be responsible and not to follow that call. However, the EFF says it is not moved by the ANC and Kosatu's criticism. Spokesperson Mbuiseni Ndlozi says they are ready to fight the ANC even in court. Or will defeat them. We understand the law. We have uh, demonstrated a lot of understanding of South Africa's law. Uh, Everybody in South Africa has the right, the constitutional right to self-defense. And we are warning them. And we've got to put it on the public record because they do these things. The ANC did rig elections in in Tlokwe. They did. And those were local government elections. And when people disagreed about the election's outcome in many voting stations in Alexander in 2014, they did send in the military to shut down dissent. So we're warning them that this year we're not just going to accept and say the elections are accepted even if they had problems. Not with the army pointing guns at us. We won't do that. That report by Amos. Pajo. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Malaria kills more than HIV, yet it doesn't get the recognition it deserves. That's according to the South African Medical Association as the world commemorated World Malaria Day yesterday. The World Health Organization says malaria is a real threat, although it is sometimes not as widely reported on as other diseases. In South Africa, almost 9,000 cases of malaria were reported between 2013 and 2014, which resulted in 105 deaths. Tabilin Bele reports. According to the World Health Organization, nearly half of the world's population, that's 3.2 billion people, remain at risk of malaria. Last year alone, 214 million new cases of the disease were reported in 95 countries, and more than 400,000 people died of malaria. 
Professor Mark Sonderab from the South African Medical Association says South Africans need to be aware of the dangers of malaria and take necessary precautions. Hundreds of thousands of people still perish every year because of complications of malaria. Treatments are very effective, but unfortunately people often access treatment late or they're unfortunate enough to develop severe complications of malaria. And one such complication is where, unfortunately, it actually involves your brain. It's a serious health concern. It kills many, many, many more people than HIV does. It remains a preventable issue through proper monitoring, early access to treatment. Sonderab says a combination of factors lead to complications. However, early correct diagnosis is critical in saving lives. Malaria presents with flu-like symptoms and can be confused with other illnesses. He warns that malaria prophylaxis taken before people visit malaria endemic countries does not provide 100% protection. There can be early misdiagnosis and the delay in making a proper diagnosis can often lead to more serious malaria and more serious forms of malaria. So that is one of the factors. Of course, in many parts of our continent as well, healthcare systems need to be developed, need to be improved. And we always say, please do not travel to a malaria area is pregnant woman. It's the one category of person that has enormous risk of developing more severe malaria. The other persons we sort of uh, suggest is very young children, as well as people who may be immunocompromised. These people have immune systems that may be compromised because of other underlying illnesses or on medication. South Africa is a leader in malaria research and successful treatment. Government says the numbers of people infected and dying of malaria is going down. Gauteng Health spokesperson Steve Mabona. The prevalence is going down in people that we are treating. Like, for instance, in 2014, we treated about uh, 1,600 people, and out of that, 38, you know, succumbed. In 2015, we treated 1,300, so it's going down, uh, about 29 succumbed. And this year, from January up until now, we've Mm -hmm. treated uh, about 500, and only eight. The South African National Blood Service runs extensive laboratory procedures as part of its screening process. To avoid malaria-infected blood passing through the system, SANBS conducts comprehensive interviews to obtain information from donors and to encourage them to stay malaria-free. Vanessa Raju is from the SANBS. In South Africa, in Popo, Mpumalanga and KTN, it's the highest prevalence of malaria. So we, being the national organization for collection of blood, ensure that we educate the public, we screen as well, and if they visited any of these areas that have a high prevalence, we defer our donors purely because we want to ensure that the blood that is donated is actually safe for when it's transfused to patients. Malaria symptoms appear within 10 to 15 days after an infective mosquito bite and include fever, headaches, chills and vomiting. Tabi Lempele, Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa on the headlines. Equatorial Guinea's President Teodora Obiang has received 99% of the early vote count from Sunday's election in the two most populous areas. South Africa's opposition, the Economic Freedom Fighters, says it will defend itself in court against treason charges brought against it by the ruling ANC. And the Somali government has been urged to prohibit traditional clan elders from adjudicating in cases of sexual and gender-based violence. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka.
Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views and great African entertainment. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Piracy and armed robbery in West Africa's Gulf of Guinea has been on a steady decline over the past few years, but insecurity remains a source of concern, a senior UN official told the Security Council on Monday. The Gulf of Guinea is the name given to the northeastern part of the Atlantic Ocean, which stretches from Guinea down to Angola in the south. It's also a busy trade hub for commodities such as oil, gold and agricultural products. Justin Sambira has a story. In the first quarter of 2016, the International Maritime Bureau's Piracy Reporting Center recorded six attacks and six attempted attacks in the Gulf of Guinea, including nine in Nigeria, one in Cote d'Ivoire, and two within the territorial waters of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Cases of hijacking vessels for political purposes by the self-described Biafran militants off the coast of Nigeria and kidnappings along the coast of Western and Central Africa have also been recorded. Tay Brooks-Zehun is the Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs. Over the past few years, there has been a steady decline in the number of recorded incidents of piracy, armed robbery at sea, and other illicit and illegal activities in the Gulf of Guinea. However, insecurity at sea remains a source of concern in the region. Back in 2012, using sophisticated modes of operation and heavy weaponry, pirates were gaining ground at the time, attacking cargo ships and oil tankers. A Security Council resolution passed in 2013 urged West and Central African countries to develop a regional anti-piracy program with the backing of the United Nations. An interregional coordination center was established in 2014 in Yaoundé, Cameroon, to coordinate all operations with regard to the suppression of piracy and other criminal activities in the Gulf of Guinea. However, the center is not fully operational due to staffing, funding, and other logistical constraints, Mr. Zerhun added. The Gulf of Guinea remains the main trade route connecting countries at its shores to the rest of the world, recalled Angolan Deputy Permanent Representative to the UN, Julio Helder Mora-Lucas. By today's adoption of the presidential statement on the issue of piracy and armed robbery in the Gulf of Guinea, Security Council is giving a strong signal over the international community concern and resolve to address the threat posed by such phenomena to international navigation, to security and to economic development of the countries of the region. The Security Council also underlined the importance of determining the existence of any possible links between piracy and armed robbery at sea and terrorist groups in West Africa and the Sahel. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. 
The nominees for this year's South African Music Awards, or Summers, have been unveiled. The contenders were revealed at a press conference in Soweto. Afrosoul newcomer Nati, house music DJ Black Coffee, hip-hop artist Ricky Rick and MT and songbird Zonke Dikana are leading the pack with an impressive four nods each. The 22nd annual summer will take place in Durban in the country's Gwazulu Natal province in June. Ntlantla Matlang reports. The nominees for this year's awards were announced amid great excitement and anticipation in Soweto. The Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa ferried the VIP guests and media to the Soweto Theatre, a landmark venue located in Jabulani, for the nominations reveal. Leading the pack with four nominations is rapper MT. He says he's humbled by the recognition. I'm still trying to prove myself. Uh, this to me, you know, just simply means that people are recognizing my work, so I don't feel like I should stop at any time. Songstress Zahara begged two nominations, including Best Female Artist. She says she's excited. I'm always excited when I'm nominated because that shows that people, they can see our hard work. Sonja Bulela to not only South Africans, but to the whole continent. And that's why I always say, lonely way, way to the we are still doodling. For me, whether I get it or not, it doesn't matter. But like Jay-Z, I quote from Jay-Z, you always said, check the scoreboard, numbers don't lie. So whether I get it or not, but check the scoreboard, numbers don't lie. Congolese-born musician Treza also received four nominations for his debut album, Seven. This includes Album of the Year, Best Pop Album, Best Remix, and Best Newcomer. He says he's extremely excited and humbled by the four nominations. I think when I make the music, I try to make sure I make it for everyone and not just a group of people. So everything I put in my music is to be consumed by everyone. To be honest, I'm just grateful I got nominated. You know, whatever comes, comes. I'm just grateful. After years of being hosted at the Sun City Super Bowl, the awards have now found a new home in Durban, Guazulu Natal. Head of Tourism Durban, Philip Stolle, says the organizers have chosen the right city to host the event. Durban is an obvious choice in as far as I'm concerned. I think the summers have chosen the right venue and the right city to host the event. Um, we are very excited as Durban Tourism to host the summers because it's a biggest, one of the biggest events in the country. So for us to hold an event of, the, of this magnitude, it's a, it's a feeling that I can't describe. The awards will be held on the 4th of June. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Glantla Masangu in Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Climate and health experts throughout South Asia will gather at the United Nations Sponsored Forum in a bid to improve the management of health risks from heat waves, which are becoming more frequent and more intense as, as a result of climate change. Claire Nullis, media officer at the World Meteorological Organization, says the meeting in Sri Lanka hopes to promote more widespread heat health early warning systems and action plans, which allows professionals and the public to better understand and monitor risks and reduce the very health risks from heat waves.
Climate and health experts are meeting in Sri Lanka to specifically look at how to improve action and warnings against heat waves. It's a very, very serious problem in many parts of the world, including South Asia, including Southern Africa, and we expect that as a result of climate change, we're going to see more heat waves and they're going to be stronger. What we want to do is to take action to ensure that they don't become more deadly. So the meeting in Sri Lanka is really about how to save people's lives. It's very timely because parts of South Asia, so parts of India, parts of Pakistan, parts of Sri Lanka are at the moment suffering from very intense and severe heat. Temperatures, for instance, in parts of India are above 45 degrees centigrade, which is obviously very, very hot and potentially very dangerous to the elderly, to the young, to people, you know, doing strenuous activity outside. So what we're trying to do, and this is a meeting which is co-sponsored by the World Meteorological Organization, by our partners at the World Health Organization, and some other very important partners, what we're trying to do is to draw up action plans and guidance systems which work, which will be effective in that particular region. You know, sometimes it's very simple advice, such as, you know, please stay indoors between, you know, the hours of... 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., so when it's hottest. But it also entails a degree of planning, say, you know, to ensure that health authorities are prepared, that, you know, hospitals can cope, uh, to ensure that schools know what to do in the event of a heat wave to protect the children. Now, this forum, it's being held following on from the annual South Asian Climate Outlook Forum. This is an event which is held every year which typically looks at monsoon rainfall, which is very, very, very important for the region. So in addition to the traditional rainfall outlook, what we're doing for the first time this year is to look at the forecast for heat as well, which is equally important in terms of its impact on human lives. Looking at the use of weather and climate information, how would this be helping health systems to prepare for extreme weather events like these uh, heat waves? If the health system is forewarned, if it knows in advance that there will be high temperatures, that there will be a heat wave, it's much easier to be prepared. So, for instance, to ensure that there are you know, a certain number of beds which are free and which can cope with patients who are admitted as a result of heat stress. It's also a case of informing people, educating the public that when it is very, very hot outside, they must do basic things such as drink lots of water to keep hydrated, obviously to try to stay in the shade as much as possible. And the important thing about this meeting is that in the past, we always had meteorologists, we had the climate experts issuing their forecasts Um, and talking about the weather. In the past, there wasn't enough communication between the weather and the climate experts on the one hand and the health community on the other hand. So they spoke different language. They spoke to different people. So what the forum is trying to do is to bring those communities together to make sure they're on the same page, 
to make sure that the health authorities understand the warnings which are coming from the weather services and really to make sure that there is joint coordinated action. The Indian Meteorological Department, which is obviously the biggest meteorological service in the region, they for the first time this year actually did issue a heat forecast. They said that they are expecting temperatures to be well above normal and in some parts of India more than one degrees above normal, which is a lot. And they are warning of the risk of moderate to severe heat waves. So with that advanced information, it does in fact mean that India's disaster management authorities, that the health sector can be prepared to say, yes, you know, we are expecting intense heat and we have to try to limit the risk and to limit the impact. We hope to learn lessons from 2015, from last year, when in both India and Pakistan there were severe heat waves. Hundreds of people died as a result of those heat waves. And so we're hoping to prevent that loss of life from reoccurring again this year. The issue of the early warning system, how effective is it in the area of South Asia? In some areas, it's very good. In other areas, there is still room for improvement. So One area where early warning systems have proved very, very, very effective in South Asia is with tropical cyclones and hurricanes. So countries such as India, Bangladesh in particular, have made huge progress in improving the accuracy of the early warnings and strengthening the education and the outreach so that people know when there is a severe risk, you know, that they should act on that risk and they should either seek shelter in cyclone shelters or, you know, move away from the coast entirely. That was Claire Nullis, media officer at the World Meteorological Organization, on the line from Geneva, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. Our economics update up next with Tavisa Lahoko. Thanks, Lulu. Employees of the Gupta-linked group are marching to the offices of four major banks in Johannesburg. They are appealing that the banks reopen their employers' accounts. This follows the decision by APSA, FNB, NetBank and Standard Bank to close the bank accounts belonging to Oak Bay Investments, apparently over the company's links to the Gupta family. Mine workers at Lili Goldmine in South Africa's Mpumalanga province have not yet been paid their April salaries. The workers were supposed to receive their salaries last Thursday, but the mine coffers ran dry. The mine says it has already applied for business rescue. The mine operations were suspended two months ago when the mine shaft caved in, trapping three workers underground. 
The appointment of the business rescue practitioner gives hope that it would source some funds to pay the workers. Regional chairperson of the union, AMKU, Francis Kabela, says that their members were informed about the situation. He spoke to the business rescue practitioner about uh, everything. Then he also promised us that we are going to be paid on the 29th of this month. Uh, everybody must not panic. That's what we told our, our members as well. So what we explained to, the, to our members is as Lily Mine is not productive, we also uh, promised them that as the management is looking for funds to fund the deadline so that we can uh, retrieve the container, we have to be patient until they allocate enough funds. Nigeria needs 700 million US dollars to upgrade its refineries to produce at maximum capacities. This was disclosed during the re-inauguration of the Port Harcourt Boney Crude Supply Line at the Port Harcourt Refining Company, Elema Rivers. The Nigerian government has invited investors to come in as the country does not have enough funds. Rwanda's tourism industry has registered significant gains over the past few years. However, local tour operators say more still needs to be done to take the industry to greater heights. Some of the industry players say domestic tourism may act as a catalyst to spur the sector's growth. They say though domestic tourism has been overlooked, it is a significant market segment that can help improve tourism revenue if it is fully exploited. Airbus is facing a new batch of technical problems with some of its A320 neo-medium-haul jets on top of previously reported engine glitches that caused the delivery delays. The problems are related to the hydraulic systems and particularly an increased noise when taxing. Speaking separately in Dubai, CEO of Qatar Airways, Akbar Alpaka, said the aircraft had issues with the hydraulic system and the software. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.45 in South Africa. 1061 in Botswana, 935 in Zambia, 69 British pound, 89 euro, gold $1,236, platinum $1,009 an ounce, brand crude oil is at $44.80 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, my name is Tabiso Lohoku. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Our sports update up next with
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. Cricket South Africa will be seeking clarity to determine where they have failed in their quest to transform. This comes after Sports Minister Figile Mbalula on Monday punished the cricket, rugby, netball and athletics bodies in the country for not meeting the required rate of transformation in their sports. Mbalula has banned the federations in charge of all those sports from bidding and hosting major sporting events until the decision is reviewed next year. South Africa is scheduled to host um, are not scheduled to host any major tournaments during the current Future Tours program, which runs until the end of June 2019. That cycle ends with the next 50-over Cricket World Cup, which will be hosted in England. Cricket South Africa has also not signalled any intention to bid for any major tournaments. Meanwhile, the South African Rugby Union released a statement on Monday where they acknowledged the EPG report and Minister of Sports and Recreation Figil Mbalula's decision to revoke their privilege to bid or host mega, um, major international events. Sarusi Ojuriru says they understand that their bid for the 2023 World Cup is under threat, but hopes that by the time the final decision is made next year, or rather in 2019, they would have had the privilege to bid reinstated. The Minister's decision in terms of a ban on the 2023 Rugby World Cup bid does pose a different set of uh, issues for us, but uh, we will seek further clarification with the Minister on that, uh, as the bid only closes at the end of 2017, and I'm sure that we'll be in the clear by then. Meanwhile, Athletics South Africa is scheduled to host the African Athletics Championships in Durban from the 22nd to the 26th of June in Durban later this year. And the organization's president, Alex Cosano, seemed relieved that they will be meeting the sports ministry on Thursday for clarification on that event. It's quite uh, an interesting development indeed. Uh, as uh, ASA, we are going to take stock of what has been produced here and uh, come back to the ministry and we've already agreed with the, the minister and the DG that we'll meet on Thursday to deal with the, the critical issues and I know that you want to ask me whether we are going to host the CAA championships or not. We are meeting on, on that uh, to make sure that uh, athletes do not suffer. You heard the minister and the DG saying that, that the intention is not to cause the athletes uh, to suffer, but is to make sure that uh, we comply where we have to comply. Hot football news. Manuel Pellegrini has told his Manchester City players to have hot hearts and cold minds when they face Real Madrid. City make their Champions League semi-final debut against Real Madrid on Tuesday night, with Pellegrini warning his players they cannot afford to lose their heads in the heat of the battle. Three red cards in four games against Barcelona helped seal City's early exit in the past two seasons, and Pellegrini knows they cannot afford to repeat that against Real Madrid. Very important to reach uh, this final because it reflects what we are doing in the work about uh, three years. After that, you wish more title or less title. And also in the way you win the title for me is very, very important. To have a team that plays well football and playing well to beat Real Madrid and to arrive to that, to that final. So I am finished uh, in Champions League, happy, especially if we, win the, if we win the title. I'm not wishing anything uh, for the future. And in domestic league, I think that for the third year, we are the most scoring team in England. We won a Premier League, two cups. So I'm happy also about what I did in there. In the other semi-final, Atletico Madrid will go up against Bayern Munich.
And finally, East African nations will once again tussle it out in the first round of the 2016 FIM East Africa Motocross Championship set to take place in Kampala, Uganda this Sunday. Defending champions Kenya and Uganda have so far confirmed participation in the champion and the champions host Uganda officially started preparations for the championship last weekend at the race site in Karuga. A Kampala suburb. Former Ugandan captain Arthur Blink says his side will ride on a number of advantages to win the championship at home. Team Uganda, I believe uh, we have a strong team all round from the little ones, 50cc, all the way to the top riders. And I think that's uh, one of our uh, biggest uh, advantages. Uh, and uh, for sure, uh, we, we are looking for a win. Zai Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Una. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, the International Criminal Court to launch preliminary investigations into the situation in Burundi for alleged crimes including rape, murder and torture. And the UN has confirmed that it is trying to facilitate the return of South Sudanese opposition leader Riek Macha to the country's capital, Juba. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Miriam Makeba with a track titled Aluta Continua. <laughs>